for the past five months, uh, we as a church have been looking through this kind of section of the Gospel of Luke. We've walked, walked alongside this doctor who is Luke, uh, and he's collated for us the most credible accounts of the most influential man in human history, Jesus Christ. We've seen what he has had to say and the picture that he's painted for us. And I wonder what your picture of Jesus is like. Who is he to you? What is his call for you on your life? As you see what Luke has said to us, you see that the picture he paints of this man, Jesus, is a radical picture. It's a radical picture of what it is like to follow this man. Let's spend a few moments going over some of the highlights of what Jesus has said. They'll come up on the screen pretty quickly. But let me read to you some of the things Jesus has said. In Luke 9, he says, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Or later on in Luke 9, No one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He says in Luke 12, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about the body, what you'll wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing, but seek His kingdom. Then these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Luke 13, He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because I tell you, many will try and enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Or Luke 14, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be his, my disciple. Or Luke 16. No household slave can be the slave of two masters. Since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot be slaves to both God and money. What does your picture of Jesus look like? Is it this radical picture that Luke paints for us, up close and personal, gathering in the, the best accounts we have of this man's life. Is your picture of Jesus a picture of a radical man who calls us to live and to follow him in a radical way? Or have you, like me, felt the temptation that as we hear these calls to kind of domesticate Jesus? They're going to turn down the volume of some of the things that he says of what discipleship looks like. Have you tried to make him just maybe a little bit safer? Inadvertently maybe censoring some of the things that he says. He can't really mean that. I kind of want to put a better light on Jesus and the way he comes across. He's a bit strong, a bit out there, maybe a bit fundamental. Is your Christian life today, as radical as the first day you saw that Jesus was the King of the universe. As we get to this last passage in Luke that we'll look at for a while, Jesus wants us to understand tonight that radical discipleship, following Him, putting Him first, is not a parable. 
It's not some literary device like hyperbole that's greater than reality that aims to cause us just to change a little bit, but he doesn't really mean that much. No, we're going to see tonight that radical discipleship is the only correct response to the identity of Jesus and to what he's done for us. Radical discipleship is the only correct response given the identity of Jesus and what he's done for us. And the question for us is, will that be your response today? Will this continue to be your response? Well, come with me to Luke chapter 18 as we meet a man who has it all and see how he responds to Jesus. Luke 18 verse 18. A ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We kind of don't know much about this man. We don't know his name, but we do know that he's a ruler. Matthew and Luke, in their accounts of of this story, tell us that he was also young and rich. Ladies, this is not the man for you. He's dead. But he's a rich young ruler, right? He's got it all. And he's got this opportunity of a lifetime right now. One chance to ask one question to the most influential person in human history. What would you ask? What question would pop to your head? What would you ask this guy if you were a rich, young ruler? There are all sorts of questions. You've heard of what he's been doing. You've seen some of the miracles, perhaps, and you're trying to work this out. You could come and say, so if you claim to be God, huh? what happened to all the dinosaurs? Like sometimes they're questions that people ask. Or people say, you know, how can we make free choices and God still be in control of all things? How does the Bible do that? And can you explain that to me? Or maybe, God, is it possible, Jesus, for God to make a rock so big he could never move it? People come to Jesus and God with all sorts of questions from all different backgrounds. But this man comes and hits the nail on the head with the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that is a cracker of a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a remarkable question on on so many levels. Firstly, it's perceptive. Here is a rich, young ruler who knows that there's something missing in his life, something that he hasn't got. Most kind of rich people come along and think they've got it all, you know. I've got all my money. I've got power. I can do what I want. I don't need Jesus. But this guy recognizes Jesus has got something that he doesn't. Either that or he's just coming to Jesus to say, hey, look, tell me how great I am. Tell me that I've got it all and that eternal life is mine. We don't know. But at this point, we want to look at him charitably and say that he recognizes maybe that there's something missing. And more than recognizing that there's something missing, he knows what it is. Eternal life. Who doesn't want eternal life? I tried to find the stats for New Zealand and I couldn't find them published anywhere. But in Australia, Australians spend $5.8 billion on cosmetics every year. $5.8 billion on cosmetics every year. How vain are Australians? Ha! Who'd be one of them, right? But I thought, why do we spend so much on cosmetics? Well, because we want to look good. We want to look younger. We don't want to look like we're old. What's wrong with looking old? You're one step closer to death. We try and hide from death. Uh, New Zealand spent, I think it was $4.5 billion in one year on um, clothing and footwear. We want to cover ourselves up and keep warm. That's good. But we care lots about how we look and we worry about death. Ever walked into farmers? 
You walk into Farmers at St. Luke, and I reckon about one quarter of the floor space in Farmers is devoted to hiding the effects of aging. Right? As you walk in, there's a, the ladies there trying to spray you with some scent. I'm like, get away from me! Like, why do people wear that? It's so they don't smell old, right? It's like, oh, I smell fresh, like flowers, rather than stinking and old and dying. And you walk a bit further forward and there's these people who pretend to be kind of pharmacists because they've got white coats on and they're going like, oh, we can put this makeup on you and make you look younger. It's just what we do. We, we hate the effects of aging because it reminds us that death is the inevitable end. The desire to live forever without sickness, without mourning, without pain, that's universal. Who doesn't want it? Eternal life is the question. And this rich young ruler has hit the nail on the head. It's a perceptive question. But as you look into it, it's actually a profoundly stupid question. I don't know if you recognize this, but listen to what he says. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, firstly, if you inherit something, you don't do anything. You just be the son or daughter of the person that you're inheriting it from. You didn't do anything to, to make sure that you were getting the inheritance. You were just born first in this world. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You can't do anything to inherit something. It's a gift. It just gets passed down. It's your birth order. There's nothing you can do for a gift. If you've worked for the inheritance, then it's a wage. It's owed to you. But here, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think you get some insight into this rich, young ruler. He's like, tell me, how do I get it? What do I do? Just tell me, who do I pay? What do I do? How do we go? How does this work? Because there's nothing that he can't do. There's nothing his money can't buy. He's used to being able to do what he wants to do and able to achieve what he wants to achieve. But Jesus here doesn't answer his question. Not, not initially, at least. Rather than drawing a line to say, this is what you need to do in the sand. Rather than saying, this is exactly what it needs to be like, Jesus' first response is to draw a circle around himself and say, if you want eternal life, you need to be this good. And he throws everyone out of the circle. Have a listen to the sobering answer Jesus gives. Luke 18, verse 19. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but one. There's got to be a moment when you approach Jesus and you think you've got him pinned. And you ask a question like that, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And his response, (laughs) your question's wrong. Why do you call me good? Why do you think I'm good? No one is good but God alone. The radical line of Jesus that we meet here tonight is that you might think you're good. You, You might think that that's the way to inherit eternal life. Maybe that's what this rich young ruler is thinking. But Jesus wants to be very clear from the get go. No one is good except one God. This ruler, the ruler's mum, you, me, my mum, your mum, Mother Teresa, no one is good enough for God. All of us have turned our hearts against God. Have you ever opened a fridge that's been shut for a long time? I don't know, show of hands, who's had the experience of, say, opening a fridge that's been shut for a year? Ever happened to anyone? Okay, you open it up, and when you open up this fridge, it looks all white and clean and nice on the outside. You open it up, and this thing comes out. I call it the fridge monster. 
It absolutely reeks. It stinks because the air inside has been left to itself and gone festy and old. When we moved here from Australia to New Zealand, we had our fridge in the container. It was probably about two months from when we packed it to when we got it here. We got it into our house, opened it up. It was covered in mold. All the inside just had fur growing on it. It was disgusting, right? It was like, oh, that's exactly right. Um, and it was just gross. Now, I thought it was clean. It looked all white and shiny when we packed it. What went wrong? Well, while it looked good on the outside and maybe even a little bit on the inside, left to its own devices, that fridge festered. And the kind of little bits of tainted kind of mold or bacteria were in there, and they kind of just worked away in the dark to open up the reality of what was inside the fridge. It's kind of like us. We kind of look good on the outside. We Sometimes we, we think we're good. But if we're left to our own devices, our hearts fester away. We don't live with God at the center of our life. We don't live up to God's perfect expectations. We don't treat God as we should. We don't even live up to our own expectations of ourselves, let alone God's. No one is good except God alone. In 2008, there was a TV show on in the US called Moment of Truth. Has anyone ever seen Moment of Truth? Oh, a couple of people. All right, this great TV show, all right? Maybe not that great. But what, what actually happens in this TV show is they get contestants up and basically they ask contestants questions and the questions get harder and harder and harder. And uh, the questions are really, um, uh, they're there in front of their family and friends and they get harder to answer because they're questions about themselves. And what they do is they hook the contestants up to a lie detector. And so then, basically, they'll ask a question in front of everyone, and they've got to tell the truth. Otherwise, the lie detector says, ah, you're wrong. If they tell the truth, they get to go to the next round, and they win more money. If they don't, then they lose, and they walk out, with, and that's it. Anyway, Lauren Cleary is on this show. She's got three questions left to win a million dollars. She's got to answer them truthfully, and she gets through. And then what happens is, in a kind of twist of what goes on, there's this woman here, she's 26, she's married to a, a guy who's 24, he's a New York police officer, they're kind of a young couple, they look like they've got everything going for him. And then they bring out a surprise guest, and it's Lauren's ex-boyfriend. He gets to ask the next question, and they say, you sure you want to ask this question? Because once we say yes and go ahead, you, you've potentially lost it. And they go, yes. The question is this, do you think you should have married your boyfriend rather than your husband? In front of her family, her mother, her father, her husband, the ex-boyfriend. She's hooked up to a lie detector test. She said she's going to go ahead. She says, yes. Lie detector, true. Two more questions. They say, do you want to go on? She's like, yeah. I think one of the fathers says, well, not much else can come out now. Next question, you ready for it? Have you had an affair since you were married? Answer, yes. Lie detector, true. Her husband's head drops. His hands are on his head. And the air is just like, what is going on? You're like, what are you doing, woman? Why are you ripping apart your family? What is, what, what is going on? They're like, final question. Do you want to go ahead? And she's like, yes. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Stop. You won a lot of money. Just stop now. Final question. And here it comes. You ready? Do you think you're a good person? She answers, yes. Lie detector, false. She lost it all. 
because she was pretending. She was saying, I think I'm a good person. She couldn't handle the kind of shame of going, oh, I think the things that I've done are wrong. But deep down, the lie detector knew that she knew she wasn't a good person. We confuse ourselves all the time. We we trick ourselves into thinking that we are good when we compare ourselves with those around us. We we compare ourselves to the worst of the worst. We see people in the news and in the paper and we think, I'm good, I'd never do that. But when you stand up next to God, who sees the fridge of our hearts and the way we've treated Him, Jesus says, everyone falls short. Everyone falls short. No one is good but God alone. Ironically, the ruler got it right when he said to Jesus, good teacher. Because Jesus himself is God. He alone is good. Makes us ask the question, who are you comparing yourself to? As you think through how you stand before God and how we stand before God, who, who is your comparison? Who is your, your mark? Is it our neighbor, our friend, the people in the paper? Or is it Jesus? God alone. The radical call of Jesus is this. To be good is to be God. That means when it comes to qualifying ourselves, when it comes to eternal life, no one is good enough for God. Who are you trying to persuade that you are better than you are to? Well, Jesus doesn't let this ruler sit in this kind of understanding. He helps him to kind of bring it out even more. So Jesus then answers the kind of original question a little more clearly to help him work this big fact out by summarizing the kind of second half of the Ten Commandments. He says this, Well, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He kind of highlights what it is to be good according to the Old Testament law. And quick as a flash... Self-deception jumps in for this rich young ruler. Look at verse 21 of chapter 18. All these I've kept from my youth. Tick. Can I get a picture of this guy? He's either incredibly deceived, or he actually is just a really moral guy, a good guy. It's hard to know where it is, but either way, we get to see more of the fridge of his heart and ours where Jesus takes us next. So it's important to realize Jesus left out the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods but me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. In other words, anything you put in the place of me that it is not me is wrong. Then we see Jesus return. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, this quick as a flash answer, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. If you've watched early morning TV, you'll see all over it, there's these television evangelists. They're like, come to Jesus and your life will be better. Come and throw money at me at the front and life will be better and you'll have a blessed life. Has anyone ever seen that on TV? Uh, If you do, just turn it off. It's complete rubbish. It's complete rubbish. It's not what is promised at all. We'll see that at the end of this passage. But I want to say Jesus is unlike every other TV evangelist. Right? He doesn't say, sell everything and give it to me. He says, sell everything and give it to the poor. He's not interested in getting it for himself. He's not interested in your money. He's interested in him having the right place in our lives, number one. And here he hits the nail on the head for this rich 
young ruler. He knows he fails the first commandment. You will have no other God but me. This ruler wants to do his way to heaven. He wants to be good enough for God. And Jesus wants to show him that that's impossible, that you can't do that. He wants to break his spiritual back. He wants to dismantle this man's pride and show him what it is to come into the kingdom and what radical discipleship looks like. What would he say? What will happen? If only he'd responded like the tax collector that we heard of last week. If only this rich young ruler at this very moment had said, have mercy on me, a sinner. I struggle with this. Forgive me for putting my wealth in the position of the true and living God. That's all Jesus wanted to hear. It's all he needed to say. But it's not what happened. What we hear is a sad, sad response. Verse 23. After he had heard this, He became extremely sad because he was very rich. This rich, young, moral, perceptive, possibly even humble ruler loves his money, his independence and the power that comes with it more than the one who gave it to him. It's so important for him that he'll give up what seems to be eternal life to keep on to the security that his money and wealth provide him. Like Lauren Cleary in the moment of truth, his love for money will drive him to extraordinary lengths like it drove her to dismantle her family. He will give up on eternal life because the cost is too much. What is so important to your life that you would sacrifice everything to keep it? What is so important to your life that you'd sacrifice everything. For Lauren Cleary, it was money to start with. I'll sacrifice my marriage, my family, the relationships that I have, my, my, my pride in front of people about whether I'm a good person. But ultimately for her, it was her pride that she wouldn't sacrifice. She still thought, well, wanted to say publicly she was a good person. What is it for you? For this rich young ruler, the thought of handing over the power to get him whatever he wants, to have the security that he needs, is just too much. And so he walks away sad. (laughs) This is a tragedy. He's sad. He wants eternal life, but at the cost is just too much. I think I've got something better in my wealth than I do living forever. And there's part of me that sits at this point and goes, you idiot. Why would you do that? And then Jesus' words come to us and remind me of how stupid I am and how focused on my security and comfort I am, recognizing the power of wealth. Look at verse 24. Seeing that he becomes sad, Jesus said, How hard it is for those to have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is, how deceptive wealth is. 
comes into our life and stands up tall and says, I'll give you comfort and security and position and power and pleasure. I'll give you everything you ever wanted. If only I had that job that gave me the extra cash, the house that I could buy, the car I could drive, the holidays I could enjoy. It's so seductive how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. If you've been in Christian circles for a while, you might have heard of a story about this camel and the eye of a needle. Uh, There's a story going around that there's a wall in Jerusalem with a hole in it. The hole is about the shape of of a really small camel. You get what a camel is, right? A long, tall, lanky, weird creature. I've got no idea why God created, but He did, right? Awesome in deserts when there's lots of sand. Australia has good spots for the camels in the middle because there's nothing else there. And and there's these lanky, awkward creatures, and apparently there was a hole in the wall in Jerusalem that if you, you got a camel and you kind of packed all its legs down with someone on the back between the humps and they ducked down low, you can kind of get through the wall as a kind of way in that not many people knew about. It was the camel through the eye of a needle. Has anyone ever heard of that kind of story where that's happened before? I'm a show of hands. Yeah, it's complete trash. Uh, it's not even recorded anywhere throughout uh, history until about a thousand years after Jesus that this eye of the needle hole was there. What Jesus is saying is, you get the camel, you get the needle. I want a pineapple pen, right? And, <laughs> right? It, they don't work together. You, you can't do camel needle. It doesn't happen. A camel going through the eye of a needle can't happen. Uh, where, where I grew up, we lived on five acres and we had 25 acre blocks all around us. And so kind of large areas and people did different stuff. There were some cows next door and we had some sheep on our place and a cow and Anyway, our neighbours two down, two paddocks down, so two 25-acre paddocks down, so they're a bit away, um, they used to collect circus equipment. Like, seriously, they had a massive paddock that had used, like, dodgem cars and Ferris wheels, all kind of, it was kind of real trashy. They had donkeys and all sorts of stuff. They had, I kid you not, camels. I grew up next to camels. That might explain a lot for you, but that's, that's, that's the reality, what it was like. And I remember waking up one day, I was probably, I don't know, 15, 16, waking up in the morning and kind of, you know, as you do, you kind of, oh yeah, new day. And I just heard this weird noise outside my window. I opened my window and I kid you not, there was a camel looking at me with its butt ugly face, looking in the window, kind of just chewing, going like this, right? And I'm like, what is going on? Anyway, so I get my dad, we go outside and we're trying to get the camel back down to our neighbor's place. It's in our little front yard area. Anyway, this camel just goes completely schizo. It can't even work out how to get out. It's like looking everywhere, like it's crazy. There's a barbed wire fence there. Like it could have easily just stepped across. They're tall, would have no problem. It gets tangled in the barbed wire fence, hits its kind of head on the tree. And we're like, oh, this is awful. What's the likelihood that if a camel can't go through a barbed wire fence, it can go through the eye of a needle? None. They're unco. Jesus is saying... It is impossible for the rich man to be saved. It is impossible for anyone who has wealth, who has money and friends. We live in the top at least 10%. We're in the top 10% of the richest people on the earth at the moment, if not the top two or three. It is impossible for a rich man to be saved. If we stopped right now, we prayed, 
We thank God for His clarity. He helped us to understand that it is impossible for those who've wronged Him, who are not good, to be saved. For those who have wealth and see that there, to actually recognize that we need Jesus. God would be just. He would be good. It would be true. But it would be incredibly sad. But thankfully, this passage doesn't end there. Although it could, couldn't it? It doesn't end there. Jesus replied in verse 27, What is impossible with men is possible with God. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Do you see how great those words are? The problem with this rich young ruler was that he wanted to fix his problem himself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he heard, put Jesus first, put him above your money. And he's like, ah, I can't. It was too much to put his false God aside. The things that he put his trust in, he he couldn't do it. It was impossible for him. But what Jesus offers when people come and follow him and trust him is the impossible made possible. The good man who lived the perfect life, dying in our place, taking the penalty for our festive fridges of lives and hearts where we've rejected God and haven't put Him first and saying, I will take the penalty you deserve so you can be forgiven before God. There's nothing you can offer. You can't pay off your sin, your rejection of God. You can't buy your way to eternal life. You need forgiveness. You need a clean heart. And no one has it but me, but I'll give it to you all. If you would just put your life in my hands, if you would recognize that I am the king. In the section just before this, Luke records a funny statement by Jesus. And that statement, I think, outlines the right response to how we gain eternal life. Have a look at Luke 18, verse 16. Jesus invited the children in when the disciples had said, no, don't let the children come. He says this, let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. You want eternal life? You want to know how to come into the kingdom? You need to think like a little child. Now, some people kind of hear that and we're like, whoa, what is that? We just just kind of, we we check our brains at the door or we need to be innocent. Children are innocent. Have you ever kind of had that idea? What about that innocent child? I'm sorry, you haven't met my kids. (laughs) Like, they are just like their father, right? You don't have to teach them to be naughty. It just comes naturally from from day one. You're like, "There's, there's two pieces of cake on the table and they will go always for the biggest, Always. It's just, why wouldn't you? It's the biggest. Why would I give that to my sister? Well, I want the biggest one. And that's just what they do. Children are not innocent. That's not what he's talking about here. They're not innocent at all. But they are dependent. That is what we call children, dependents. And here the word for child is actually an infant, a baby. Whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a baby will never enter it. How does a baby welcome the kingdom of God? Well, it does nothing. It just sits there and gets brought to Jesus. (laughs) If you take an infant, if you take a a five-year-old, sorry, a five-month-old, and you say, all right, I'm going to put you here, five-month-old. I don't know if you know your ages, but maybe they're crawling, maybe not, something around that. And you go, 
you just stay here. I've got to go to work for a day. I'll come back. We should be fine. It will not be good when you get back. If they are still alive, it'll be a miracle. They need food. Like all that an infant does. We, we had um, uh, Via and Natalie were at morning church this morning. and They brought their, their new baby, four weeks old, Theophilus, to church. We prayed for him. It was such an exciting kind of moment. First time at church. And we like prayed for them as a family. Imagine a four-week-old on their own. Just be like, you deal with it. What, what can you do to live four-week-old? Like nothing. All a four-week-old kid does is cry and sleep and poo and eat. That's it. And they don't do very much sleeping. Like that, that's, that's all. They're completely dependent on their parents. We're completely dependent on the one who is good, on the one who has died in our place. We can't do anything to get right with God, to fix the insides of our heart. No matter how hard we try to clean it, we need a new heart. We need Jesus' death in our place. I want to be very clear to you tonight. If anyone ever tells you that there is another way to be saved, apart from Jesus' death and resurrection in our place, if anyone ever speaks or says to you that there is something, some way that you can, something you can do to ensure you have salvation, other than say, oh, I'm hoping Jesus does it for me, then they are lying. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is nothing we can do to get eternal life. It's inherited. It's a gift from God. So how do we respond? We respond by treating Jesus as He is. The one who is God the Son, who has come and lived and died for us. He is the Christ, they call him, the Messiah, God's appointed king, the one who'd been promised, who is the leader of the world and the one who is in control of all things, who made all things, who sustains our hearts right now. But by, by the virtue of who he is, recognizing who this Jesus is, when he draws that line, that figurative line in the sand to say, no one is good except God alone. And we, we recognize, that's right, it's you. You are good alone. You are God alone and good alone. That means every relationship in our life, every asset that we own, every dollar that we receive, must come second to Him. It must. He is the one who made us. He is the one who sustains us. It's not so that we might be saved that we do that. It's because of who He is. If you want to follow Jesus, then you need to recognize who He is. Now, does that mean that we should all just give up all our possessions right now and sell them all and give to the poor and follow Jesus? That's the way to be saved? That's what radical discipleship looks like? Well, maybe, but not totally. So this situation here is to this man right in front of us. This man whose issue is wealth right there. He he cannot handle to give up his wealth. And there might be a number of other things that go for us, but... We must be careful not to apply that straight to us. Jesus says lots of things throughout the scriptures that we can't apply straight to us. If I was to go down to the waterfront tonight and go, look at this. I read in scripture that Peter trusted and had faith in Jesus and so he could walk on water. And I go out and go, what's this? I'm going to get wet. Right? I'm, I'm not going to be able to walk on water. The promise was for Peter at that time to show who Jesus was. It wasn't a promise for all ages. This is a command from Jesus to this rich young ruler to say, put God first. 
And here is the area that you have issues with. But in another sense, he is summing up his command to all of us. He's summing up everything he's said since the start of chapter 9. We've been looking at it over these past five weeks. To follow Jesus requires radical discipleship. He must be first in everything. I'm going to think, what is it like to put him first? Where do I have areas that I want to keep to myself? And I'm like, well, it'd be like saying, I give you all the passwords to all the websites and, and, and the bank accounts and social media accounts that I have. You're in control of them all. It's not mine, they're yours. You must be first. My identity must be in your hands. My, my security must be in your hands. It's like writing a blank check and saying, here is my life. I put you first because you are the king. What is so important to you that in order to keep it, you could potentially compromise your radical discipleship of Jesus? What is so important to you that in order to keep it, you would compromise your radical discipleship of Jesus? I want us to think through that. I want us to be real tonight. What will stop you saying, Jesus, you've got it all. You are number one. I serve you in every area. You are the king who has died for me. I'm all in. What is so important to you? In order to keep that thing, you would compromise your radical discipleship of Jesus. What is it for you? Is it money? Saying, I want that job, that security that comes from having my own money to do whatever I want with, to have the comfort that it comes with. Is it family and their opinion of you and what they think of you? That if you did give it all to Jesus and serve Him with every area of your life, they'd they'd say to you, look, I think that's a bit fundamental. I think you should kind of pull back and, and you'd listen. Is it comfort? I actually just value my own comfort more than being a radical follower of Jesus. Is it your reputation? That you couldn't bear for your friends and colleagues and family and workmates to know that you think that there is something more important than life than our own happiness? That it is Jesus who is number one. That He is the King and that He sustains your life and you will serve Him no matter what the cost. You give it all to Him. And they say, that's so stupid. And you say, yeah, it probably is. Is it your independence? I just want to call the shots. I just want to live life my way. No offense, Jesus. I hear what you're saying, but you know, it's just not really what I want to do. What is it for you? That you are willing to bet eternity on. There are so many areas. But the issue that Jesus brings up is still the issue of wealth. It's money. Money acts for us like a barometer of where our importance lies. If you've been here over the past few months, you would have felt like, maybe you would have felt like, Jesus has been talking about money a fair bit. I feel like he's been talking about money a lot. As our habit is, we want to preach what the Bible's saying. But I feel like I want to kind of turn back Jesus here. Like, man, are you talking about money again? I'm like, man, we've been hearing you say this for so long. Why do you keep talking about money? And then I go, why am I saying that? Because I don't want to hear it. (laughs) It's because for me, 
Money is there as, as a security, as a hope. Jesus is right. How hard it is for those with much wealth to recognize that we need to trust the true and living God. Paul says in 1 Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Once you put money first, people come second, God comes third, and that is the world totally upside down. And all sorts of evil happens so that we might get more. Friends, the only vaccine to greed is generosity. Please hear that. The only vaccine to greed is generosity. Jesus doesn't need this man's money. He says, if you want eternal life, if you want to trust in me, get rid of your crutch. Get rid of the thing that you've put in the place of God. Just get rid of it. I don't care whether it, whether it goes to me or to the poor. Just stop it. Give it away and follow me. But he can't. Jesus is saying the only vaccine to greed is generosity. We need to think through how we live our lives, how generous we are, how much money plays a part. Uh, this week, in the way it's coincided, is the end of the kind of uh, tax year. We're in April. Uh, as a church, we send out receipts to everyone in church who's given to church uh, to see the gospel go out. And on that receipt, we, um, we list how much you've given for the year. The treasurer puts it all together. And that's so that you can claim back uh, from the New Zealand government one-third of everything you've given to church and you get it as a tax credit. It's phenomenally generous. But this is a fantastic opportunity to look at how much you have given in the last year and sit down and go, does this statement reflect my king? The priorities that I have for the money he's given me the time that I've spent, the energy that I have to give to the kingdom. It's a great opportunity to reflect where you're at. The Bible keeps talking about that the great joy that comes with giving to the spread of the kingdom. Not so that pastors at church get more. We never get more. Our pay is fixed. It's fixed to the average, to a percentage of the average weekly earning of someone in full-time employment. Uh, and then we provide a house so that that family can live that's suitable for them. And we don't get more money from that. We want to see the kingdom go out. More people come to know Jesus. That's why we exist as a church. So the great joy that Paul puts before all sorts of people, the Macedonians, the, the Philippians, is to partner in the gospel so that this news of Jesus might ring out across the globe so that people might be there on that final day having inherited eternal life. It's a great opportunity to reflect on our generosity to reflect on the radical nature of our discipleship of Jesus. If you haven't started giving yet to church, I want to encourage you, just start with like five bucks. Um, kind of a quick look at some of the stats that we have as a church from the treasurer. Uh, apparently there's, there's around about 49 people uh, that, haven't, that are kind of regular at church that haven't started giving yet. I want to say, guys, if that's you, you're missing out. You're missing out on the joy and generosity of being able to see the kingdom keep spreading. And if, if people just gave 10 bucks a week, I think that's 25 grand a year to see the kingdom keep going out, to see more MTSs trained up. One of the things that we want to do as a church is we've been praying and planning to put on another full-time pastor at the end of this year. Another full-time pastor to help us as a church to connect with the community around us, to see the gospel keep going out. And so we need to keep thinking through, are we committed to the kingdom going out? And if you're not committed to the kingdom going out here at EV, then find another church you can be committed to the kingdom going out through. Uh, come and ask us about where we're going, why we're doing it this way, but it doesn't matter where you give it. Find a place, find a church that you can see and partner in the kingdom for and see that gospel grow. The other thing to say, though, is uh, this month, for the first time in a while, we've been above budget in our giving. Oh, that's incredibly exciting. 
to see that people here have got this gospel vision. We've been listening to Jesus. If you look on the back of your outlines, you'll see we're about $1,900 above budget where we thought we'd be. That's something to celebrate and be generous and excited and joyful about. That people have gotten what it is to partner together to see the gospel keep going out. So I want to say, well done. Keep going. As we think through how Sarah and I can keep serving with the the money that God has provided us and and freeing that up for gospel generosity. Every time we express generosity, whether that be here or to our brothers and sisters across the globe, what we are saying is, Jesus, you are the Lord of all of my life, including my money. And my generosity reflects that reality that He is Lord and not my money. It might not just be money for you. Radical discipleship might look like boldness in evangelism. Generosity with God's kingdom. Taking opportunities. But the amazing thing at the very end of this passage is that we are not left just with a command, but with a phenomenal promise. Have a quick look at verse 28. Then Peter said, and you hear him, right? He always puts his foot in it. Look, we've left what we had and followed you. Right? He's like, what do you mean give up everything? How hard it is? What's impossible? Are we it? I feel like I'm serving you. with. I feel like I'm, I'm giving. I've given my life. I've given up my fishing. I'm here telling people about Jesus. Is, is this it? Is this us? Listen to the love of Jesus in verse 29. He said to them, I assure you, there is no one who has left a house a wife, brothers, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time an eternal life in the age to come. Let me say it again. I assure you there is no one who has left a house, wife, brothers, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time an eternal life in the age to come. Sure, you might lose family relationships, but you gain a new Christian family, a church family. You might uh, lose a wife who can't stand the fact that you, you put Jesus first and she doesn't want to do that and might walk away from you. But you, you have then relationships within the church to encourage and build you up. You have parents who might care for you within a church or, or children that might have walked away from you, but you get to share in the discipling of kids within this new church family and houses to share. He's not saying here, give to Jesus now and your life will be perfect. But he is saying there are great blessings that come with putting Jesus first now. And then in the age to come, when Jesus returns, eternal life. Put me first and I'll take care of you. They're the words of our King, of our God. Treat me as I am. I am your God. Radically follow me. Seek first my kingdom. And right living and all these things will be added to you and in the age to come, life forever. Do you believe that? Do you trust Jesus enough to radically follow him with everything that you are and everything that you have? Do you trust that he is the king, the king that is worth following? The King that is worth giving our life to, who offers us forgiveness and life forever. Do you trust Him enough to put eternity in His hands? Not in the hands of the gods of comfort and pleasure. 
And let me ask you, will you today radically determine to place your security, your satisfaction and your own identity in the hands of the safest and most rewarding person possible? Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, tonight, it's been great to reflect on Jesus' word to us, your word to us through Jesus. It's been great to recognize how amazing Jesus' offer of salvation is. Lord, if we're honest, it's been a little scary to reflect at the fact that we are not good, that we are not good enough for you, and that our future without you would be death and destruction forever. Lord, we confess that so often we run to so many functional saviors, things that we think will save us but don't. We seek popularity and Wealth, position, comfort, independence. But deep down we know, Lord, none of those will satisfy. None of those will deal with the mess that our hearts are toward you. And so, Father, we pray today that as we reflect on Jesus' words together, as we hear what he has said to us, that we might radically put Jesus in first position in every area of our life. We pray tonight you would show us areas that we are tempted to compromise, things that we are tempted to put our trust in other than you, and that you, Lord, by the work of your Spirit and through this Word, would convict us and change us and mold us. We pray you'd make us into a church day by day, week by week, that cares and loves for one another so that we might put Jesus first. Father, we are amazed that we can stand forgiven because of what Jesus has done and despite what we have done. So we ask tonight that you would help us to radically follow your Son in every area of our life because he has saved us.